Pray with me. Father, as we approach your throne today with our Savior at your right hand, who has as his footstool thing that we know or see or understand, and all power is yours. Father, forgive us for coming with little to no expectation um, that you would work in powerful ways. That the addictions and habits that seem to hold sway and sometimes even seem to control and dictate what we do are powerless at your command. And Lord, sickness... Even death must succumb to your command. Father, forgive us forgetting, for forgetting that we have an intercessor that even the wind and the waves had to obey. So Lord, today raise our expectation of you and forgive us for so little faith. Father, repaint for us a picture of the church and our role in it that fits your word. That is no less a church than the one that we see in the first century. No, no less powerful, no, no less impactful, no less successful, no less pure, no less prayerful than what we see there. And Lord, because we are your church, we are your body, we are your ambassadors, we are the army of the king, Lord, we know it starts with us, with me, with each of us. So Lord, have your way with us today. Lord, may, may we not just go through the motions, may that be impossible, but as we encounter you today, I pray that we would be changed. Us all, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the book of Acts, we see 14 different recorded miracles. This is the first one. And so today I'm going to try to do two different things and try to hold them both together uh, because I don't want to lose one for the other, but I don't want to emphasize one over the other either. On the one hand, we need to theologically examine miracles, the place that they, that they, the place and role that they played in the first century, and where and how do they fit in our understanding of church today? We need to understand that correctly, theologically, not not just emotionally. But also, we should not look at what God did simply through a through a theological, intellectual lens but experiential. What does God want us to know and experience? What is it that God wants to do? Um, how is it that God intends to move and work you know, among us? And so that's, that's our challenge. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been going through, uh, through the book of Genesis. Now, as we go through the book of Genesis, one point that I've reiterated frequently is there are things in the book of Genesis as it is primarily a narrative. It's a story. It's a story of creation. It's the story of God creating a people. It's the story of God calling out a unique people to himself and how those people came about. 
how God kept his promise to them, how God established them, and how that precedence of a covenant-setting God sets a precedence for our salvation, the new covenant we have in Christ. So that beginning of God and the promise-keeping God that he is, the covenant-making God that he is, all established in Genesis. Now, as God keeps his covenant with people in the book of Genesis, he does it with, well, broken people. If you read through some of the stories in Genesis, they're no less remarkable or interesting than some of the oddest plot lines or storylines you might ever find in a soap opera or a movie or a TV series. And some of the things we see in Genesis, we have to be reminded of, are descriptive, not prescriptive. So we look at these things, and they are what happened. It is what is, but it's not what ought to be or how we ought to do it. We shouldn't take everything that we see to do. So when we look at Acts, how much of this is descriptive? Because this also is a narrative. It's a historical account of the early church. And how much of it is prescriptive for us? Well, the best way for us to see that is this. What does the rest of the New Testament teach regarding these things? How did the church do these things from that time forward? Which of these things were precedent-setting, and how did they continue that way? And what does the rest of Scripture teach us about them? And so we try to look at Acts all in its big context. So starting today with Acts chapter 3 and the very first miracle, just open your Bible there for me, if you would, just for a moment. And let's read the first portion of this together, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, let me pause here just for a moment. It may surprise you just a little bit to find that the early church, they continued to practice their Judaism. They continued to go to the temple. They continued to participate in the, in the temple rites and the, the religious expressions of Jewish people. They were what we might say today, com, uh, completed Jews or some terms, messianic. They recognize that the fulfillment of the Old Testament is in Christ. It's not something brand new and totally different. It's a natural thread, a natural continuation. Now we have Christ. That'll be a big challenge to the early church, by the way, when the church begins to bring in Gentiles who didn't have this Jewish background. And we'll talk about that more as we come. So as they go up to the temple, the, the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Let's look at this story and... Consider what it means for us today. The first thing is this, and this sounds like the most oddly obvious statement I could possibly make, but this first miracle in Scripture was truly miraculous. Okay, it gets better than this, I promise. I, I'll... <laughs> but it was truly miraculous. And the reason I want to point that out to you today is this. We really overuse the word miracle. Uh, people overuse it in their writing. We overuse it in our conversations. And what I mean by that is we frequently ascribe to the miraculous things that are really not. Maybe they're interesting, maybe they're fascinating, maybe they're coincidental or incidental. You know, maybe they're amazing or even somewhat unusual, but they're not genuinely miraculous. 
When we say miracle, what is it that we're actually talking about? We're talking about something wherein God himself steps in and supersedes natural law. It can't be described or defined rationally or naturally. This is when God does something that's unmistakably God. This is when what he does has no explanation. So when we approach miracles in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we, we really should not be trying to figure this out in rational terms. Well, no, what really happened here was this. Or because we're in the scientific age, quote-unquote, and I say that with great cynicism, we're in the science age now. We're guided by the science, right? No, stop me now before I get off track. No, we, we don't try to define these. We look at miracles and rightly say, that's impossible, that doesn't, that doesn't meet rational thinking. That can't be explained with the laws that we understand. No, because it's miraculous, it's, it's of God. And so as we look at these, this was truly a miraculous event. What God did here is, is unmistakably miraculous. And as we think about miracles in the scriptures, remember that, that Jesus set a precedence of miracle working that substantiated kingdom preaching. The miracle working established the authority of and gave credibility to the message that Jesus proclaimed. Jesus said in John 10, 25, The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. He says in John 10, 37 and 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Why did Jesus do miracles? They established his authority, they conveyed his identity, they gave credibility to all the words that he spoke. And you may remember this if you were here months back and we were going through the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, what we find is Jesus actually was first and foremost a preacher-teacher, not first and foremost a miracle worker. The miracles substantiate the preaching and the teaching. Remember when he met Philip? He challenged Philip to believe. He said this. He said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So the works always corroborated what he said. And what about Nicodemus in John chapter 3? The famous story of Nicodemus' conversion. You must be born again. What did he say to Nicodemus? Or what did Nicodemus say to him to begin with that initiated the conversation? John chapter 3 verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How do we know this? How do we know that you are truly from God? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's the essence of the miraculous. And we also know that God then, through Christ, commissioned those first apostles, those disciples, to carry on the mission accredited by miracles. So as they spoke, as they gave out the gospel, they did it with signs and wonders. Paul wrote of this when he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you all with perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. You may remember this from Hebrews, the last book we did together, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, how? Both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So in Jesus' earthly ministry, he established his authority and identity and message through performance of signs and wonders, and he gave that same right, responsibility, gift to the apostles. And so the church was established in the same way. So what do we see in these miracles? 
Well, one, how do we know it was truly miraculous? The effect was instantaneous, and it was permanent. This wasn't something gradual. The man who couldn't walk, who had a congenital deformity, a congenital issue, the man who could not walk before, who almost every day was probably on these steps waiting to receive just a little bit of almsgiving, some coins, now all of a sudden could walk. One of his legs didn't get a little bit longer or shorter and begin to match up a little bit. He didn't feel a strange tingling sensation that he needed to continue to pursue over the next 6, 9, 12 months or a year as he pursued a miracle. It happened, and he got on his feet. So much so that it took him by surprise that now he's leaping, shouting, praising God. He doesn't care who sees. It's also conspicuous and undeniable for the same reasons. Everybody knew him. They knew this guy. This wasn't a prop. This wasn't a setup. This wasn't one of those miracle-working crusades where the only people that get healed are the people who you can't even identify any malady with them. Not the people in the back in wheelchairs. Not the people who came in with walkers. Not the people who obviously can't see. Not the people who are missing arms or limbs. No, it's the people whose maladies you can't identify. And those are the people that somehow get healed, but everyone else gets left behind. No, this one was legit. This was real. So what's a miracle? Again, unmistakable act of God. Defies rational or national thought. But what's the point of it? Make sure you make note of this word. The same word that Jesus used, the same word that the scripture writers use, that the Holy Spirit gives them, sign. A miracle is a sign. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem says, the purpose of a miracle is God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. What's the point of the sign or the miracle? To arouse in people the awe and wonder that points them to God. I was watching, as some of you probably remember, the American Gospel series we watched together, and the third version is coming out soon. And one of those miracle, so-called miracle workers that were featured on there was a gentleman who would go about just performing miracles on the street, random. Now, again, they're all these that sort that could never really be verified. The, the person who had a slight limp or the person who had a, uh, some sort of pain that couldn't be identified, um, something that couldn't really be verified. And I can remember distinctly, he would go and he would either lay hands on them or pray for them, and all of a sudden one leg would become the same length as the other, or all of a sudden some pain would go away, or something would happen, they would feel a little bit better. And he never gave the gospel. He would tell them that God loves them, he would walk away as if, as if the miracle were some sort of self-affecting salvation event, and they're, they're, just, they're just not. They're meant to bear witness to Christ. So when we see these miracles, here's sort of a, a quick preview, which we'll review again because there are 13 others coming out of the book of Acts. What should we infer today regarding the miracles that we see in Acts? Let me hit this just very quickly. It's not in your notes. If you're looking at that blank, I don't have this blank in mind. I I got defective notes. This is on the margin, okay? What should we infer from this? Well, one, I think we should infer this. I think all Christians, all Christians, regardless of whether you consider yourself more Pentecostal or not at all Pentecostal, cessationist or continuationist, all Christians should affirm the miracle-working power of God. The awesome power of God to do what God wills to do, when God wills to do it, for whom he wills to do it. We should affirm that. We should affirm the awesome power of God to do what he wants, how he wants to do it, that nothing is impossible for him. We should affirm that God does still heal. And we should seek that. We should should expect God to do amazing things. We should pray for God to do amazing things. But we also can believe simultaneously that this gift of healing 
as he poured it out through Jesus, as the Spirit worked through Jesus, as the Spirit worked through Peter and James and Paul and some of the others, we should also understand, I think, biblically, that that belongs to a particular age and stage, at the initiation of the gospel and the birth of the church. And we have not seen that since. does not mean that God has not worked miraculous things in times and people and places. But what we see is a continuing theme of the New Testament. What do Christians do, or what are Christians commanded to do, For instance, when someone among you is sick, what are we told to do? We're not told to heal them. We're told to pray for them with the understanding that God himself has the power and the ability to heal. So first of all, does God still heal? Absolutely. God is sovereign, can do what he will. Does God work in the same ways he did through Jesus and the apostles? Doesn't seem so. That's That's not commonplace. Does it mean he doesn't in parts and places and people occasionally, perhaps where the gospel is being introduced? Where great work has begun? Yes. Is this the norm? It is not. We also should understand that universal healing, the expectation that it is God's will that everyone be healed, is not biblical until we reach the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, those who belong to Christ are universally healed. And so we should not expect otherwise, that the primary purpose of God's work in this world today is not to heal people of physical infirmities. That's not primary. I mean, we know this from... The scriptures, we know that often these infirmities are given so that people will persevere. They're given so that people will develop faith. They're given so that people will continue to trust and be dependent on God. So the primary work of God is not physical healing. So three things. God still heals. Universal healing belongs to the future kingdom. And the primary work of God is not physical healing. It's not the primary work of the Holy Spirit. What is the primary work of the Holy Spirit? And again, we'll see it not just in Acts, but throughout the New Testament. British theologian David Wenham writes it this way. The miraculous workings of the Spirit are wonderful, but they are by no means the most important work of the Spirit. The Spirit's major work is converting sinful people to Christ, then making them increasingly like Christ, producing in them the fruit of the Spirit, notably love, and helping them in suffering, not necessarily by removing it, but often by giving the grace to endure it. So, should we expect and ask God to do miraculous things? We should. Should we hold a theology that says God desires everyone to be healed? We should not. Should we know, though, that the primary of the Holy Spirit is a deep healing of spirit and soul? Yes. That's the ultimate purpose of God. Now, so first of all, here's here's a point. Was it miraculous? Yes. This is a legit miracle. This is not the kind we typically see today. This is for real. Second thing is this. It was accomplished through ordinary men. Now, as I was making my notes, I thought, I better put an asterisk beside that one, so I include it in your notes as well. Ordinary men, in a sense. Ordinary men in that God could work in the same way through you or me today with these caveats. You see, these ordinary men, I mean, and, and again, they, they were ordinary. The two men in question here were just blue-collar guys. I mean, it wasn't so long ago they were, they were on fishing boats with most of their time. After the crucifixion, We know that's where they intended to return. That's where Peter was headed, back to the way it was. They were routine routine fishing fishing men, ordinary guys. But what was different about them? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. What's powerful about Peter and John and Paul and the others is not Peter and Paul and John or the others. What's powerful about them is the presence of the Holy Spirit in them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were vessels of the Holy Spirit. These were also men who were willing to be used by God. A word for that would be surrendered men. Here, 
Do with me what you will. Use me how you will. If it's on a fishing boat, so be it. But if it's not, then use me how you will. Surrendered men, God, where do you want to send me? And again, that transformation too is not just a mental one. That's not just me trying to stir you up today and say, hey, give God a blank check for your life. That happened when the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of them. The Holy Spirit convinced them. Don't live for small things anymore. I've got something great for you. You'll be my witnesses. Here's your calling. Be my witnesses, whatever that looks like. doesn't mean they didn't earn a living. We know that the, the early leaders of the church were uniformly bivocational. They weren't paid professionals. But their primary occupation was not what drew their income. Their primary occupation was their mission as witnesses of God and Christ. They were willing to be used by God. And think of this simple point that just jumps off the text. It's one of the more famous lines in the book of Acts. Again, you can picture the scene. Here's a, here's a man that's been going through this routine. He lives off of this. I mean, you understand. This is, this is social security of the first century, the giving of alms. People who were faithful to their um, religion, being faithful to Judaism required the giving of alms, dropping some coins as you pass by. That's a good deed that they're required to do. Jesus affirmed it, that we ought to be doing this. And people depended on it. So this is that social security of that first century. So this is what that man has been dependent on for a long time. And there probably aren't many of us who haven't been in a major city somewhere and seen someone on the side of the street or maybe passed an uh, you know, uh, exit ramp on the, off the interstate and seen someone holding up a sign or maybe even in our own community. And we have mixed feelings sometimes about what we should do and who's legitimate and who's not. But we've seen this. We're, we're familiar with this. He's probably used to getting what people get today, being ignored most of the time. So when Peter and John give him his attention and look at him, it, it captures him. Look at me. He does. These are going to give me something. They're going, to, they're going to put some money in the cup. And what Peter says at that moment is really profound. It's just honest, but it's profound. Um, I don't have any money. Silver and gold I don't have. But I do have something I can give you. And the most obvious truth of this whole text just jumps off the page. You and I can only give what we truly have. We can only give what we have. If I don't have it, I can't really give it to you. Now, let me just try to elaborate on this for a moment without spending too much time, because there's more to be covered here in this passage. I wonder how many of us are really reticent, reluctant to share, talk about... Um, explain Jesus to anybody, why we're a Christian, why we believe in him, uh, why we do the things that we do, why we go to church, why we pray, why, any of these things. We're very reluctant to do those things because we have such a tentative grasp on it ourselves. We're not really sure we've got it. Or some of us just really know on the inside we don't. I don't have anything worth giving. I couldn't answer their question. We couldn't give, we couldn't give a source of joy to somebody who's suffering because we don't really know it ourselves. We, we couldn't really give an answer to somebody who's struggling because we, would, we don't know where to find it ourselves. Uh, we couldn't give a sense of purpose because we lack one. Um, we couldn't tell them, hey, follow God, because we know we're really not. We can't give what we don't have. Um, as Peter and John walked up those steps, what they gave was something out of the overflow. They'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. This we've got. We're, we are poor men. But we've got something for you that we can give you. I thought about this also as I just imagined this scene over and over again, because this is very much a religious scene that's happening here. 
This whole story would have very much resonated with religious Jewish people because they get this, going to the temple for prayers every day and seeing the poor people and giving them alms. Yes, we get this. It just gave me an image of, of modern church life that's not so different than old religious life. How often do we just simply go through the motions, not seeing the real needs all around us, and at the same time, offering people and giving people something that, one, costs us very little, and two, benefits them very little. We, we give things that don't really matter. I had a challenge to, to church staff 10 years ago when I first came. Um, things not worth doing aren't worth doing well. Now think about that just for a moment. Things not worth doing aren't worth doing well. And so what if we're doing things that really aren't worth much? We get good at them. They don't cost us very much. It's not painful for us. You know, I can walk down a, a city street and see someone with a cup in their hand begging. It, it costs me very little to give the coins that are in my pocket. I don't keep much cash on me anyway. That, that costs me very little. And at the same time, it accomplishes very little. What if the church has become good at giving things that don't cost us much and don't benefit people very much? When the one thing that people need is the life-changing power of Christ. The life-transforming power of Christ. How will they get it? How will they get it? More often than not, it's going to be on the way back and forth from the temple, not in the temple. It's going to be on the way back and forth from those groups that meet from house to house we saw in Acts chapter 2, not in the house to house. Where where are you going to encounter these people who need the life-changing power of Christ? I'm not saying that they don't exist in this room today. I'm saying that as a percentage, they exist far more out there. Where you work, where you live, where you go to school, in your neighborhoods, where you walk, the people that you see all around you. That's where they are. And you have something to give if you have something to give. And if you have it to give, you must give it. You can't give what you don't have, but if you have it, you have to give it. Because that's what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. That's what it means to be his witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. You'll do what I've done. We can only give what we truly have. I love this quote in an old commentary by Thomas Walker. He said, the power is Christ's, but the hand is ours. The power is Christ. The power to change a life, and that doesn't belong to you and me. We don't have the ability to transform people. I'm, I'm very careful with purpose statements when it comes to church and church life. You and I don't have the ability to change a person's life. We don't have the ability to transform anyone. But we do have the ability to reach a hand out. We do have the ability to be that voice. We do have the ability to see what other people are ignoring. We do have the ability to get out there. The power is his. The hand is ours. Okay, so it's truly miraculous. It was accomplished by ordinary men, and it was clearly messianic. Now, this is the theological point, so I'll not spend too much time on it. But in substance and type, it was not different than the types of miracles that Jesus did. It looks the same. The same types of work Jesus did. It verifies what Jesus said. The things that I did, you'll do also. They're doing them. This is not a lesser miracle. This is the same sort of miracle. It even looks like some of the miracles that Jesus did specifically. It fulfills prophecies about Jesus. When the kingdom is ushered in, one of the Old Testament prophecies about the realization of the kingdom that has come, that Jesus announced, Jesus said the kingdom of God is here, and now they're spreading that kingdom. That's what the church is for. In the kingdom age, these were the things that were prophesied, things like Isaiah 35, 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. So it would be very easy for the apostles to point to these miracles and say, this is what the prophets promised. They said when the Messiah has come and the new age has begun, we're going to see this and this is happening. 
And it did exactly what God intended to do, what it did when Jesus was still on the earth. It created awe and it forced questions. It created awe and it forced questions. Who can do such a thing? Where does such a thing come from? How does such a thing happen? And the answer can only be found in Jesus. So that's the point. That's what makes it a miracle. It's not meant to simply be a mystery. It's not meant to magnify the personality of these disciples. It's meant to be messianic. Let's look at at Jesus, the author and the source. And, as I alluded to just a moment ago, it is a display of the church in action. The church in action. And I wish I had more time to spend on this point. I probably put two sermons in one, but I do that sometimes. The church in action. The gospel is not abstract. It's not just intellectual. See, I fear sometimes we've taken the, the gospel and we've turned it into an equation or a formula. Here's what the gospel is. If you say this, God will do this. If you pray this, you get this. It's a simple equation. Here, I can share it with you in 10 seconds. No, it's so much more than that. We're not talking about life continuing as it has before with now entry to heaven and nothing else until heaven changes. That's, that's not the gospel. The gospel begins with a new heart, with a regenerated, reborn heart. The words that we take for granted because we lost the sense of them had incredible weight when they were first spoken. When, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he realized the impossibility of that. We just throw born again like that just means, well, yeah, I prayed that prayer. I believe that, that statement to be true, so I must be born again. No, born again is, is the most radical possibility known. That God could make me new. He could change my heart. That's what Nicodemus says. So what am, how do I do that? He says, rather sarcastically, do I go back into my mother's womb and start this thing all over? And what was Jesus' answer? No, it's the Spirit. The Spirit of God blowing where it will to bring, breathe life where there's death, to give new hearts. You must be born again. This is regeneration. The gospel is not abstract or merely intellectual. It's life-giving. Jesus said, don't forget, you know this verse. I came that you would have life and life to the full. He didn't say, listen, I know life is hard and feels meaningless, purposelessness, purposeless. So here's what I've come to do. I've come to give you hope that when you die, you get to go to heaven. And nothing's going to change until then, so just hang in there. You're going to stay in the same misery. You're going to deal with the same problems. You're going to deal with the same hang-ups and habits. Same attitude, same conflict, same disorders. Everything's going to be the same. But hey, when you die, you get to go to heaven. That's not the gospel. It's life to the full. It's life-giving. Listen, come and follow Christ. Walk in new life. You and I have to remember that we've got something to give that can be found nowhere else and in no one else. We spent um, the month of uh, January talking about our mission as a church and the values that define that mission. What does it mean to be an everyday missionary? Well, it reminds us that the church fundamentally has a mission. We don't get to pick that. Without that mission, we're not the church. We're, we're a group of people. We may be a happy group of people. We may be a close-knit group of people. We may be a philanthropic group of people. We may do a lot of good things together. We may uphold some important causes together. But a church has to be on this mission. We have something to give, and it's Christ. And only we give it. We, don't, we have no other. There is no other means. 
And then as I mentioned just a moment ago, remember this, though they were filled with wonder and amazement, they were not converted by the sign. Never should we look at these miracles as acts of conversion. It didn't happen when Jesus was ministering and it didn't happen when the apostles did. If the miracles were significant enough to convert people, there would have been tens of thousands following Christ. Not hundreds. There wouldn't have been crowds and throngs calling for his crucifixion. They would have been worshiping him. Now, miracles don't convert. They require something else. The sign points. And it points to the truth. And so that leads us to Peter's second sermon. We've already seen Peter's first sermon happen on the day of Pentecost. Peter's second sermon was equally opportunistic, seizing the moment. Look what happens, verse 11. While he, the man who was healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. What a great opportunity. Wow, look at this. They're all coming here. Look what's happening. What was, what was begun is something personal. It's now becoming something very public. So he's seizing this opportunity to talk about Jesus. Again, is it descriptive or prescriptive? I think it's both. Will you seize opportunities when you have them? When questions are being asked, will you jump into the fray? When, when the opportunity is there, will you, will you address it? You see, it's one of the benefits of the times in which we live. The lines are not nearly as blurred as they used to be between light and darkness. There's very little gray anymore. Socially, morally, spiritually, I mean, darkness and light, this, this could not be clearer contrast than we have today. And there's so many opportunities. Will you jump into the fray and talk about Jesus? When the door's open, will you walk through it? So he sees the opportunity to talk about Jesus, and then this is what he did. And if any of you are aspiring to be teachers, preachers, people who communicate the gospel, then what a, what a great, dare I say, and I hate to use the word formula, but what a great strategy, what a great structure for communicating the gospel. Here's what he did. First of all, he connected the dots from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's a reason why we teach through Old Testament and New Testament books. I remember several years ago, someone challenged me on that. I said, why do you teach so much Old Testament? And particularly, we do this on Wednesday nights. Why do you teach so much Old Testament? We're in the New Covenant now, the New Testament of Christ. Because God is God. And there's a continuous theme of redemption that began in Genesis. And if you don't understand Genesis chapter 1, well, John chapter 3 won't have much worth to you. And it all connects. But connect the dots, because he's connecting the dots in the sermon from, this is what you have believed, this is what you've been told, but you only have part of the story. You don't have the fulfillment. You have, you have the tension. You don't have the release. He also confronted them over their sin. And that's huge. This is the point. What was the man's issue on the steps? Physically speaking, he, he couldn't walk. Let's just loosely call that a dis-ease. His legs didn't function as they should, or a deformity, something not structured as it should. This is his issue, so what's the solution? Healing. What's our issue? We have a disease of the heart, a deformity of the heart, a sickness of the heart, a malfunctioning of the heart. What is the solution to that? Only Christ. He confronted them over sin, and then he communicated the gospel to them clearly. 
And then he challenged them to respond to that gospel with repentance and faith. Here's the gospel. Your sin, here's God's answer to it. Your response to what God has done. And then he gives this at the end, this great challenge. If you respond to this, he conveys to them hope. If you believe, there's hope. But if you don't, there's judgment. If you refuse to believe, there's simply judgment. Listen to the sermon. Verse 12. When Peter saw it, what do you see? He sees the crowd gathered around. When he saw it, he addressed the people. Listen for those components I just gave you. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. You see? He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. You see what he says? This should not be a surprise to you. He's the same God. He's the God of our father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Jesus is a continuation of that. But look what you've done. You put to death Jesus. But look what God has done. By his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man, given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Jesus did this. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so he's, he's connecting the dots of Old Testament and New. He's sharing with them. A challenge. This is what you have done. And whether you fully understood it or not, this is a sin you're guilty of. But this is Christ, the Christ of God, the Messiah. This is the only salvation that God has ever promised. What's your response? Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I mean, it's an incredible sermon. This is not something different. This is what God has been doing all along. This has been God's plan from the beginning, now fulfilled in Christ. And once again, they're surely left with this feeling of, what have we done? And the reminder I said at the end, but for those who will believe, what comes? For those who will genuinely repent and turn back to God, forgiveness, refreshing from the Lord. For those who don't, judgment. And at the end of the message, he reminds them of their special privilege. Listen, God did this to you first. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I want to wrap up our time today with this idea. Have you ever considered how privileged you are? 
when we talk about the gospel, we talk in these big, broad, sweeping, churchy kind of terms. You know, we want to get the gospel out to the nations. We've used a phrase for years now that our church exists for, for God, for his glory first, for Dothan, because that's where God has placed us, that's our immediate mission field, and for the world, to get the gospel to the nations. But have you ever considered the privilege you have of having it? I mean, there are untold numbers of people who don't have it, who haven't heard the name of Jesus. It's why we give, it's why we go, it's why we pray, it's why we send. It's, it's the basis of our labor and our mission. We want to be part of the answer to that. But almost all of us in this room have grown up around it. It's, it's, it's been just circulating around us. It's not hard to find. Multiple Bibles in our homes, multiple exposures or touches to church, multiple references and culture all around. I mean, it's just right there, just hovering all around us. doesn't mean we have it. I mean, it doesn't mean we possess it. It just means we've been given incredible opportunity. God's given it to you first. God's given it to you. What sort of judgment will be? What sort of judgment will be given to those who had greatest privilege? For those to whom much has been given? That's you. There will be no excuse when any of us stand before the Father. So I didn't know. No one ever told me. No one ever talked to me about my sin and God's demand for holiness. No, no one ever explained to me that I was going to have to stand before God one day and give an account of myself. No one ever told me that. No one ever told me that God will judge sin because he's righteous and holy and must do so or he ceases to be God. No, no one has ever told me that salvation is not just so that I could be forgiven and go to heaven one day, but so that I don't live as a sinner anymore, that I can be set free, that I don't have to live in addiction and the old life, and I can be changed, I can be transformed. You and I will not have that excuse. We've been told first. And I want you to think about this phrase. He said, listen, God sent Jesus, the one that was spoken of by the prophets, the one that was promised of by the Father, the one that preached with power and signs and wonders, the one that you crucified, one that you rejected and crucified, the one that was raised, that we were all witnesses. Again, key components of the gospel. We were witnesses. We saw it. Of course, among that crowd would have been others who saw it or others who knew of someone firsthand who saw it. It was not refutable. The resurrection was never in question in the early church. Why did God send this Jesus to live and to die and to be raised and to come again? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. We probably don't often receive it this way because it feels so hard and it's hard to take. We don't like the emotions of it and we do everything that we can to fight negative emotions, bad feelings. We run from them, we medicate them, we try to occupy ourselves so we don't think about them. But conviction is a blessing. It's a blessing. If God ever breaks your heart over sin, if God ever causes you to actually weep at what's real and what's true, if God ever gives you a glimpse beyond your own defense system to see what he sees apart from Christ, that's a blessing. Conviction is a blessing. And it doesn't feel that way because, again, we, we hate to feel badly. We hate to feel bad about ourselves. We hate the negative emotions. We hate, we hate that whole experience. We'll do everything we can to escape it. But conviction, genuine conviction of God's spirit is a blessing. Repentance is a blessing. Repentance is hard. I mean, to, to genuinely repent, to not just 
run the cycle, the repetitive cycle of temptation, sin, guilt, ask for forgiveness, temptation, sin, guilt, ask for forgiveness, and until that cycle just begins to lose steam, and all the momentum of that begins to go away, and so then we just begin to forego certain parts of it because we don't feel guilty anymore, so we don't feel bad. We stop asking for forgiveness. We start accepting, start explaining, start condoning, start normalizing, and then we just live in it. Listen, repentance is a blessing, and it's hard to turn from sin. God enables that turn, but it's a blessing. Forgiveness is a blessing. To know that I'm, I'm able to stand before a holy God in the righteousness granted me by Christ, He's blessing us by turning us from our wickedness, by convicting us through repentance, then forgiving, and then sanctifying us. Sanctification is a blessing. Although it feels painful too. The reshaping of us, the remolding of us into the image of Christ. Because we have a tendency to to resist that. We're happy with the image of us. We're happy with who we are, and we don't want to acknowledge otherwise, but yet God is shaping us into his image all the time, and sometimes that shaping can be painful, but it's a blessing. Why? Because in all of this, God is turning every one of us from our wickedness and turning us towards him. This is the gospel. So, first miracle, something amazing, just one guy on the steps that God heals to create an opportunity of awe and wonder so that people open up their minds and hearts to hear the gospel, and when they do, what is that gospel message? Turn from your sin so that you can be healed. Even if that's hard. Acknowledging my sin, turning from my sin, embracing his forgiveness, and surrendering my life to him so that he can shape me as he wills. And that's the blessing. That's the blessing that God gives. That's the purpose of Christ's coming. I'm going to ask you if you would just bow your heads with me this morning. There are a lot of action steps. I wish there were just one, one simple one, but there are a few for you to consider as a Christian this morning. If you're a believer, what have you got to give? You can't give what you don't have. What can you give? Where you've experienced hope, can you give it? Where you've experienced grace, can you share that? Where where you've walked through sin and repentance and restoration, can you convey that? Where God has healed you, healed your marriage, your family, brought restoration. Can you give that? Can you share that? Can you give what you have? You may not have the silver and gold to meet the need. You have Christ to give. Do you have the hope of glory? If you don't have it, then why? What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? You're sitting there saying, I've considered myself a Christian, but I don't know. Listen, you can't give it away if you don't have it. Now, what about you? If there's one of you that's not a believer yet today. Listen, God sent Jesus to be the blessing in your life, to bless you with himself. And that blessing begins with conviction, to turn you from sin so that you would turn to him. And that blessing is a painful one at first because we got to face it. we got to be real with this. Just like those people in that crowd had to do that day, they had to acknowledge what they've done. All the weight of it, all the seriousness of it, all the pain of it, all the regret of it, 
Because it's our tendency just not to face it, not to ignore it, as if it will not be there, but it will. And then to genuinely repent, God does not desire to leave you in a state of perpetual sorrow, guilt, remorse, regret. Man, that's what a living hell that would be. But genuine repentance so that refreshing can come from the Lord in the form of forgiveness and restoration. And then just know that when you belong to him and you have turned to him in Christ, he will relentlessly sanctify you. And that too is a blessing. And he's always working to create Christ in you, to make you more and more like his son. So what is God calling you to do as a believer? Father, I pray. There's so many things in this text, Father, that I pray would happen for us. Father, raise our expectation of your power and your might to do the miraculous, Father. For, for those of us who've grown weary and whose faith is dragging and lagging, and so we don't pray like we should, we stopped expecting you. Father, forgive us for that. Renew, renew us, renew our spiritual energy and focus and give us perseverance so that we might pray with confidence and perseverance. May we have hope and give hope that you can do anything that you choose. And there's nothing that our God cannot do. Father, I pray that we would become so much more opportunistic in the right way when it comes to the gospel. That we wouldn't cower back, we wouldn't shy away from, but we find those opportunities to, to give hope, to speak truth, to help out. Lord, that your power at work, but, but our hands to, to, to see and to reach and to speak the truth. Father, give us clarity of the gospel so that we can share, but not just as an academic exercise, but as a life-giving one. And Father, if you haven't changed our lives, if, if all we know is facts and information, then Father, do that today. Change us as we surrender to you, as we genuinely repent and come to you. Father, we, we need your Holy Spirit, one, to give us new hearts, new lives, to regenerate us, to baptize us into your family, to transform us. We believe that Jesus lives perfectly died as a sacrifice for us we believe you rose again we trust in those things now father give us your spirit to change us make us new we submit to you father sanctify us so father move among us today i pray maybe some seeking you now again for something great something only you can do something that will only be attributed to you others deciding they're going to they're going to surrender to be useful to you, to do what you want them to do. All of us giving what we have. Father, I pray to your glory, for the good of those who need you, we would be good representatives of you. In Jesus' name.